Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio, WFMP Louisville Broadcasting from here in the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM. And hey, we live stream to the world at forwardradio.org. Wherever you are, you can pick up our station live and you can also catch our podcast there if you want to hit up our archives any of our local programs that you missed or want to share with a friend you can find them at forwardradio.org and, and while you're there chip in a few bucks to help keep us on the air this great community treasure only costs 20 dollars a day so together man we can totally afford this awesome station uh, and if you can chip in today at forwardradio.org we would really appreciate that and we also rely entirely on volunteers like me so if you want to get behind these microphones or behind the scenes you can uh, click participate at forwardradio.org and become a part of our station today. Well, what I do each week on Sustainability Now is sit down with some people I really admire and want to learn more from. That's why I do this, because I love it. And I'm so happy to get one of those people in the virtual studio with me today. Devarian Baldwin is joining me. Welcome, Devarian. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful to be here. For those who don't know DeVarian, he's an urbanist, a historian, a cultural critic, and a professor of American studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Is that where you're joining us today from? I am, right from the offices of uh, Trinity College at Hartford. That's All correct. All right. His books include Chicago's New Negroes, Modernity, The Great Migration, and Black Urban Life out in 2007. And his brand new book just came out this year that we're going to talk about today is called In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. And uh, man, can we just start? I work for the University of Louisville. You work for Trinity. Uh, right. Let's talk a little bit about this sort of cognitive dissonance, right, of of working for institutions that we are there to be critical of, really. I mean, I am. Mm. I was hired to be a change agent, right? And so right. when you're saying that, you're saying there are things wrong with this place. <laughs> we got to right. fix. Uh, yeah. How does that feel for you? Well, whenever I people hear the title plunder, yeah, um, that's a strong they, word. It, it, it gives them pause. And they're saying, you know, they see it as a contradiction that how dare you work for an institution? How do you dare you bite the hand that feeds you? Um, but you got to take a step back and look at these institutions. I mean, first of all, just from a worker standpoint, if you worked at a factory and you saw something wrong, you would try to make it better. I would hope. Yeah, you, you might join a union. You might talk to the boss, what have you. This is my place of employment. So I want it to be the best it can be. Yeah. But even more strongly than that, we have touted these institutions of higher education as serving a public good. Mm. They all have mission statements right. about contributing to the public. And one of the great catchphrases for universities is solving the globe's biggest problems. So would it be a disservice if these institutions didn't attempt to solve the problems in their own backyard. Mm -hmm. we, we, we tout these institutions to be served as a function of kind of a, uh, the secular church, the moral, the moral and civic compass of our, of our country. And so for me, this kind of work is a logical extension of the mission that the institutions have embraced, um, especially right now in the 21st century. 
No, that's that's so true. Uh, I, I'm glad we got that out on the table because <laughs> I'm always yeah. feeling a little bit weird about it. Uh, mm. So you begin your book with the story of the University of Chicago right. uh, and some of the gentrifying impacts of that university sure. and the story of the, the checkerboard lounge. Folks here right. in Louisville probably are not familiar with this. You want to share that story really quick and why it's an important way to sort of frame this book? Yeah, for sure. So the Checkerboard Lounge is a historic blues club that was started in the late 1970s. Uh, one of the co-owners is the, is the great blues guitarist, Buddy Guy. So some people might know of him. Uh, yeah. But it was this place, This people called it a blues shrine, a place where mm. Muddy Waters, Coco Taylor, Rolling Stones, a range of blues and blues adjacent folk came to pray at this shrine, so to speak. And in, in the 90s, it was facing a challenge in terms of um, simply the, the roof was leaking and, and some friends of the lounge thought it would be an easy repair. Um, but then bef right before their eyes, the University of Chicago had made the announcement that it was going to be saving the checkerboard lounge. And what that meant was basically literally taking the lounge, picking it up and moving it from its uh, historically black neighborhood of Brownsville to the university campus neighborhood of Hyde Park mm. um, as a kind of uh, anchor for their entertainment and uh, uh, lifestyle corridor entitled Harper Court. And so residents of Brownsville and advocates of Brownsville immediately charged cultural theft, cultural mm. privacy, piracy, and the university responded that, no, this is actually an act of historic preservation. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Depends um, on how you couch it, right? How you, how you couch it, right. <laughs> and so what, what, what got revealed to me from a number of sources was that this actually was meant to serve as a centerpiece for the university that had for years turned its back on kind of commercial development because it might bring in mixed races and classes to the community. But then by the time we get to the 2000s, having an urban environment, nightlife, retail, et cetera, is a, is a key cornerstone for urban universities and adjacent institutions. And so the checkerboard was supposed to sign, serve as the signature signpost for the university's revival of an area that could attract researchers, developers, students, faculty, and families. And so for me, this became a window into the University of Chicago and other universities across the country, not just serving a commercial influence, but this broader influence and growing control over the economic development, but also the urban governance of our cities. And the Checkerboard Lounge, this episode was a window into that, this growing control or, or what I call the rise of universe cities. Mm, right. And it got revealed to me that, you know, colleges and universities have become the biggest employers, real estate holders, um, healthcare providers, and even policing agents in major cities and college towns all across the country, right before our eyes. Mm. And, you know, at one level, this is great. They they produce these amazing innovations. Uh, they bring diverse ideas and people together. But we rarely see that there's a cost for those who live in the shadows of these ivory towers. 
Absolutely. And that's what we're going to dig into today here on Sustainability Now. What what are some of the costs of our urban universities? We've got them right here in Louisville. University of Louisville is just one of them, right? And mm-hmm. what's going on sort of behind the scenes that we don't even think about in terms of those universities sort of throwing their weight around? There's this there's this term in higher ed about anchor institutions. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned just the phrase anchor earlier, and it got me thinking yeah. about it, right? Mm-hmm. And we... we t- we tend to think of that as like a good thing. This means that these institutions aren't going to go away. Uh, the, right. the, the jobs we, we offer as a university aren't going to disappear tomorrow that you can depend on us. We're going to be here. Mm-hmm. It's couched in that way. Uh, but in a way that also can sort of create a power imbalance in our, in our universities. Right. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. So, so the point here is that with this idea of, relationship, dependability, also comes growing influence. Right. So when we talk about the impact of these schools on housing, jobs, policing, et cetera, we, we think safety, we think prosperity with, with good reason. But at the same time, we have to recognize how campus expansions can also raise housing costs mm. and displace residents in the neighborhoods that largely surround these campuses, many times because of a history of land land value, land development, these neighborhoods are largely working class and or neighborhoods of color. And so they raise these housing costs and displaced residents. Campus police force then surveil and profile the same residents. And especially for private universities, but not just private universities, those campus police are really held to public accountability. Yeah. And then higher education's broad control over labor. And we have to, we have to remember this, that schools are the biggest employers, not on campuses, but across the city. Mm. So because they have this control over labor, um, they can lower wage ceilings mm. and they also can suppress collective bargaining efforts. That that the wages that universities set, um, they set the wage ceilings for the entire city. And so these are some of the, just some of the undersides of what happens when you cede public authority and economic power of your city to these, as you, as you pointed out, these anchor institutions yeah. that are not evaluated or engaged as corporations, mm-hmm. even, even though we don't always do a good job, you know, with evaluating corporations, but they don't get evaluated or, or supervised as corporations, but they function in that way. They function with a new profit orientation, new profit uh, motive. Um, so there is this, this, this disconnect between the idea of what we think about them, and then their reality. And so in order to really get at this, we must must free ourselves from, from number one, the myth of higher education as a schoolhouse. (laughs) Because that's a fraction of what they're doing in the new economy. We can talk about that in a minute, about why. And once we do that, then we must, too, shift higher education away from its current focus and try to think about and rebuild or um, develop a vision of these institutions as people's universities. Hmm. I definitely want to touch on policing more later in the interview. Uh, With good reason, being yeah. Louisville, for <laughs> yeah, sure. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But if we could talk a little bit more about the sort of corporatization of universities. Sure. They didn't always used to be run this way, but we mm-hmm. see this growing trend. And especially when you're talking about labor and wage yeah. rates, what's yeah. happening in universities is – 
even the people we hire, even to do the fundamental things of teaching, right. are, are more and more tenuous hires. There, yeah. I mean, the, there's this idea that every faculty at UofL is somehow tenured and getting mm. a great wage, and I wish that was no. true. The, we have a, a huge percentage of our faculty are part-time, uh, not on tenure track, just right. scraping by. I know some of these people. They're great people, and they have, they really are scraping by, working all kinds of multiple jobs just to that's make it. Right. But that's not that's not even the biggest problem in my mind. The bigger problem is that we outsource a lot of the work that universities used to do, whether we're talking mm -hmm. about dining, the bookstore, yes. custodial. Yep. That's right. And these corporations, mega corporations like Aramark, are now mm -hmm. struggling to even find people who will take the jobs because the pay is so low. That's so low. That's right. That's right. And it's combined with the with the lack of safety of being an essential worker in our pandemic crisis. People are saying, oh, well, it's because they got uh, unemployment benefits and now they don't want to work anymore. Mm. But it's but many studies and conversations reveal that it's a it's actually an intentional refusal in this moment to put people's lives in danger of being exposed to, you know, in 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 unregulated states when it comes to the vaccine on top of um, or in addition to being paid the same low wages that that the low wages were enough. But then when you add the new variable of, of life and death and bringing those that precarious nature of life and death back to your families, mm. many people are refusing that option. And we think of that as prim primarily within, you know, sanitation or the health fields. But we don't understand that a key fulcrum or key site of struggle over this 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 refusal to of, of, of precarious labor is actually our campuses, hmm. and because our campuses are one of the are the biggest or one of the biggest employers in our cities, this is a battleground for much bigger issues than just simply higher ed issues. This is a this is a real life urban economy issue hmm. that we don't always talk about in these ways. So just to get to your point, like how do we get here? Yeah. Um, so the, the people think about the university at one point in time being just simply about education. First of all, it's never been like that. There's always my good colleague, Craig Wilder, has shown how the higher education in the colonial era facilitated the biggest political economy in the world, which is slavery. So the relationship between the university and the economy goes back to our founding. Um, but there has been a shift in the last 40 years. Um, that has what some people might call neoliberalism mm -hmm. or the use of public resources and goods for private interests and private uh, uh, private investments that has also impacted higher education. Yep. Yeah. So 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 just to get at that point, that when we get to the 1990s, the children of suburban sprawl begin to look back at the city. So after these decades of divestment, cities have been left to die. And one of the few institutions that was still in the city because it was hard to move is higher ed. Mm. And so, so by the time we get to the 90s, the children of suburban sprawl begin to look back at the city um, and we start to see a new funding structure. Talk about neoliberalism. There becomes a new funding structure where you have these urban policies that are underwriting tech companies and startups. And we have an increase in quality of life police of so Rudolph Giuliani in New York is a key example right. of this, but it happened all over the country. Uh, policing the squeegee wiper, right. uh, you know, start start criminalizing medical health issues, mm -hmm. clearing out the city for those who want to come back and kind of reoccupy it, resettle it from the suburbs. Um, and so various cities begin to compete with each other for young professionals and empty nesters. And when they think when they're thinking about the city, what is their idea of the city? It's it's uh, coffee houses, museums. Uh, dense environments, 
uh, uh, fully wired mm -hmm. uh, workshops of glass and steel with wood floors. Essentially, their idea of the city is a campus. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the other side, universities um, are trying to compensate for shrinking state budgets because whether we know it or not, whether public or private, all universities receive public money. And so on one side, you got cities competing for these uh, returnees who want an urban experience that looks like a campus. On the other side, you've got schools that are trying to compete with each other to compensate for a loss of state money. And so there's a moment of interest convergence mm. between higher education administrators and city officials. And so they come together to begin to reimagine the city as a campus. And so in short, the ivory tower becomes the new smokestack of the <laughs> urban economy. Wow. And this is what brings this story together. And at the center of that is the rise of what we probably call um, the knowledge economy. And I can talk about that if you like, but just the point of this new shift in the economy and, and what gets made and how puts the university at a central place where in a way that it had not been central um, before. That's that's a great framing. I just got to break in and, and reintroduce you to our listeners. If you're just tuning in, we've got Devarian Baldwin here on Sustainability Now. He is author of the new book out this year, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. It's from Bold Type Books, uh, and you can find the book at boldtypebooks.com or get it at your local bookseller. Uh, yes. And we are we are trying to consider some of the, you know, the good, the bad and the ugly. Take a full look at what universities do to our cities today. And I, I mean, we're, we're diving deep into the issues already, and I love it. But uh, I, I would love to hear the story about your school, too, and Trinity yeah. College. And you tell the story in the book about how Trinity has literally gone through a, a process of enclosure from the, the black and brown neighborhoods of, of Frog Hollow in in, right. in your city, right? Tell, tell us a little bit about how that story has looked for you. Sure. Yeah. So for almost century, Trinity goes back to eight to the 1830s or eight, uh, it's, it's bicentennial is coming up in two years. So 1823. Uh, and so for years, it was a finishing school for the gentry class, the, mm, you know, mm. for the elite. It was, a, it was elite liberal arts college like Amherst or Williams or other schools in New England, um, you know, in the, in the, in the post-colonial, U.S. colonial era. Um, but by the time we get to the 1980s, 70s and 80s, we've experienced like all cities, white flight and economic divestment. And as the city looks up, it's surrounded by poor black and brown residents mm. with little state or municipal investment in these communities. And it's faced with some conditions. For so long, it was able to elevate above. It's be literally the city on a hill. Yeah. <laughs> um, like literally it is. Wow. And so it thought for so long it could live off the reputation of being this elite school, actually a feeder school to Wall Street. Okay. Um, but the reputation of the school began to, to get dented and bruised. Um, because of the violence and the poverty around the, the campus. And so there was an attempt by a, a previous president, Evan Dobell, came in, very unconventional guy, and he's like, listen, the value of the school is going to be tied to the value of the city. And so he, 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 he built out a, a learning corridor that he called Trinity Heights that had housing and schooling for the communities around it. He's like, we're not going to push out the residents. We're going to include them. Um, but there were lots of uh, alumni and administrators who were very reticent. They were like, Liberals College is not about doing what they call social work. It's about <laughs> just turning inward and, and being a school. Mm. And so after when he talked bigger than what he had the money to follow through right, with. Right, so after yeah. that, people began to literally circle, circle the wagons. Mm. And part of that was taking a literal fence 
and running it across the public street mm-hmm. and, and engaging in what you call full enclosure. Mm-hmm. And to this day, this, the school continues to to struggle with its its notion of being a liberal arts college in a capital city is whether that's going to be simply just a branding mechanism to distinguish it from other liberal arts schools at a time when people are not willing to pay $70,000 a year for a liberal arts education. Um, so whether that's going to be a branding mechanism or it's going to be a real vision of sustainability, the idea that these schools of this type will not survive from a sustainable standpoint if they don't invest in real substantial ways in the communities that surround them. Yeah. And so that's, a, that's something we're struggling with to this day. There are, there's an older guard and some newer guard who are saying, listen, when we talk about urban engagement, we mean talking to the to the uh, financial sector or the state house. We don't mean these neighborhoods around us. <laughs> and then there are others that say, you know, engagement means, urban engagement means actually trying to revive some of those old ideas of Evan Nobel, housing, jobs, uh, patronage to the local businesses, and really investing so that those neighborhoods will invest in us yeah. at times of crisis. So that we're, this is a struggle we're, we're dealing with to this day. And it's a struggle that many schools are dealing with in yeah. that, live, that are in college towns or cities. That phrase really popped out of the book for me. Urban engagement is social work. Right. <laughs> we we need right. to think of it that way. Yeah. Uh, but let's touch on that. Let's let's dive into this issue of policing, uh, if, okay. we, if sure. we could. Because um, right. it seems it's so crazy to me that we give these universities the power of policing, the power of the state mm-hmm. and who, to whom are they accountable and what are they defending? And are they, are they policing for university policies, you know, or our actual right. laws, but then they're out mm-hmm. on the streets, pulling people over, right. you know, the, I'll just tell a really quick story about U of L PD. They once issued an all campus alert. You know, you get the sign up on your phone, you get the alert, whatever Yeah, we get it. Too. You get, it literally said we are, there's been a robbery. We are looking for a black male in a red hoodie. <laughs> red is the color the color of the school, of the right. school. You, right. you know how many black males and red hoodies we got mm-hmm. that is mm-hmm. not helpful now they did apologize later after there was a right. lot of pushback but right. to me that is telling right? right oh that that example is symptomatic of a larger problem and so for the listeners you just need to i think it's something that we don't even know a lot of us don't even know about how policing functions on campuses so we think of campus police as primarily just breaking up frat parties and <laughs> you know uh, uh but 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 campus police is big business and it's big power so just a couple of facts uh most schools 75 percent of schools have campus police not public safety 75 75 this concludes wow. public and private schools um have campus police um, nearly all carry guns yeah. and about and about nine and ten have arrest and patrol jurisdictions off campus. Right, right, right. And so this is something that we need to understand. This means that you your school, your campus police is armed and is private because it's a private school. So you this school, the campus police has as a has public authority without public oversight. Because private schools are not subjected to Freedom of Information Act laws. Right, right. So these these schools can do what these these campus police, because they're tied to a private school, can do what they want and don't have to report or be held accountable about their patterns of stopping, of stops Mm. and arrests. Mm. And that's become a huge problem, especially for predominantly white schools in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods. And what this has looked like is... Um, what some at University of Chicago, the places are called a two-tiered p- 
policing system. What happens is that you'll have a, a resident and a student get stopped for the same infraction, but the student in a predominantly white school will be sent to the dean of students and go through that process. Right, right. But the resident will be sent through the criminal justice system. Mm. And then you mentioned the red hoodie. I talked to students all over the country and they have, students of color have made the point of what happens if we get mistaken for a Louisville or a Hartford local? And so their response to that has been to always wear school <laughs> paraphernalia when possible. But yeah. the point, the problem with this is that with these schools, having the jurisdiction to police in the name of public safety over residential neighborhoods, it is dangerous to think that these students are then putting on school paraphernalia in a, as a way to distinguish themselves from everyday citizens. Hmm. When if you if the school's been given jurisdiction over the public, there should be no distinction. Right. But what that decision reveals is that these po campus police are governed more by the university interest mm. than they are by the public good that they've been certified to uphold. Mm. And that's a major problem, especially when it comes to this two-tier policing system and the, and the acts of racial profiling that we've seen. So for example, in the case I covered in my book, um, Samuel DuBose at the University of Cincinnati, um, so not that far closer to you than to me, Samuel DuBose was pulled over for a, a license plate. Mm. There was a, an argument and he ends up dead on the ground, miles away from campus, shot by University of Cincinnati police officer, again, over a traffic violation. And even the then a, a district attorney who was known as a cop DA, mm -hmm. he even said, this is outrageous, that that universities should not be in the business of public policing. Yeah. And so this is just one example of many examples across the country where individuals have been shot, killed. And people say, well, there's a small, you know, in, in the bigger scheme of things, there are small numbers of individuals who've been shot and killed. But the general act of being policed and surveyed and harassed and profiled, basically in a, in a public neighborhood that has become an extension of the campus because of the campus police jurisdiction. So therefore, your, your activities, your behaviors are being governed by the interests of the university and its board of trustees and its administrators and how you live and move your daily life. That is not just an imposition mm -hmm. or an inconvenience. That is a, an act of, of inhumanity, mm. of private governance, of, of what some people call a, a, it's, it's like a, a new form of feudalism. Hmm. So this is something that we must be aware of, that it's not just simply counting the numbers of people that are killed, but how does a, a private police force or a quasi-private police force in terms of public universities, their jurisdiction over our neighborhoods um, with public money, how does that dictate our daily lives? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, of course, after the Louisville Metro Police Department killed Breonna Taylor, right. uh, there was quite an uproar as there should have been and the students started making some noise their demand though was that the university should cut any ties with this corrupt organization the lmpd right but didn't really turn inward and take Which a critical look at the ulpd right right and, uh, and i think this is my book if anything is an attempt to to offer service to students and activists and community residents like that yeah because of, we've been trained to see this disconnect this distinction between campus and city to begin to see the intimate relationships and the bleed between city and campus and the role that campuses have mm. in shaping life chances in our cities that don't stop at the campus gates. Yeah, yep. Yeah.
And so that's, that's what I hope that people begin to see. So I, I, I implore the students to say that your, your campaign is connected and your police are connected to a larger envisioning of what public safety could and should look like. My guest here on Sustainability Now is Devarian Baldwin. He is an urbanist, historian, cultural critic, professor of American studies at Trinity College over in Hartford, Connecticut, where he's joining us from today. And he's author of the brand new book out from Bold Type Books, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. I want to talk a little bit more about sort of the economic impact yeah, of, of our sure. universities, too. Universities are tax exempt. Mm -hmm. and, and why is that tax exempt status of university so problematic? And what right. should be what should be done? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, mm -hmm. what would be a better model for us? Right. And just to be clear, you are taxed, but its property is tax exempt and its endowment is tax exempt, which is the two primary mechanisms by which they produce wealth. <laughs> so let's just be clear about that. <laughs> yeah, those are the two, the two <laughs> primary levers upon which they produce wealth. And, and how does that happen? Well, because of their 501c3 status as nonprofit institutions, this tax exemption status has been bestowed because it's argued that they do things that governments would have to do. Hmm. So this becomes a compensation for that service. Right. But as we as we've entered into the knowledge economy, and real quick for the for the listeners, um, the knowledge economy is where academic research is used to create profitable commercial goods or right. patents in a range of fields from pharmaceutical industries and software products to military defense weaponry. Right. And so the the fact that academic research has been monetized yep. is, is a powerful. But the question becomes, where is it being monetized? It's being monetized on these tax-exempt <laughs> campus buildings and these <laughs> campus blocks. And so ultimately what happens is that partnerships between private investors like Google or Bombardier or Lockheed or what have you, these partnerships between for the research and the final product is taking place in workshops on campus blocks that becomes a tax shelter hmm. for these private companies. Hmm. And so the consequence for the residents in a city like Louisville, when this private research is being done in partnership with these university um, researchers, is that the hope is that this research will produce royalties yeah. from intellectual property. Then those royalties come back to the university and that money never is never seen by the residents. But on top of that, those blocks where that multi-million dollar research is being generated, they remain tax exempt. And the burden of maintaining the city is passed on to the residents. What does that mean? Well, residents in this, for example, in uh, this historically black neighborhood of Witherspoon Jackson, they were finding out that their property taxes were going up and the res and the residents and rental properties found out that their housing costs were going up and they and there was no improvements mm. and they couldn't understand why and then they began to realize that they they were sitting next to tax exempt princeton university <laughs> buildings that was producing millions in royalties under the guise of educational purposes but we had a partnership with eli the pharmaceutical company eli Lilly, and so it's producing millions in royalties and then the the cost for public works like secondary education, snow removal, trash removal, the electrical grid, all these things that get paid for with what? Property taxes. Those services are being utilized by the university, but the burden is being passed on to the residents that surround these campus, campus blocks and the university benefits from it, but is not paying in. So at the end, residents in that neighborhood won a multi-million dollar lawsuit 
against Princeton University that got wow. put into a fund to help compensate for their their increases in property taxes. Wow. So that benefited homeowners. It didn't really do anything for rental for renters, but it benefited homeowners, which is which is a step. Uh, but one resident in that case was so disgusted by what he discovered was going on that he dismissed Princeton as a hedge fund that <laughs> conducts classes. <laughs> Uh, um, wow. uh, another um, uh, uh, a group of resident uh, students in the Greenwich Village area of NYU, they, they found out similar things are going on with NYU and they call basically NYU a real estate company, which also issues degrees. Mm. And, and so mm. this dynamic is happening all over the country, unless you think that it's just a, a, a private university thing or an elite northeastern university, like an Ivy League thing, um, Arizona State University, University of Virginia doing some of the same things. They're recognizing that their university land can is serving as a tax shelter for private companies. They're leasing it out to like state farm insurance hmm. and, and, and other pharma and pharmaceutical companies in exchange. So these schools, these institutions, these private companies sit on university land, the tax exemption gets transferred to them. Wow. And then they pay a smaller fee to the university. University uses that money to build out things like football stadiums and pay um, head coaches, million dollar salaries without the oversight of the government, because normally public expenditures to a public university had to go through the, the electoral, the democratic process. Hmm. But this money from this, this, this tax shelter process, this, this tax exempt hustle is <laughs> exempt from that oversight. And so this has become a new economy. And the most important thing here is that when we celebrate the prosperity, we look around and say, oh, look at these shiny buildings of glass right. and steel. Right. Look at the Louisville football stadium. Look yeah. at the basketball team, et cetera. We don't connect that their prosperity is directly tied from extracting public resources and dollars from the communities where they sit. Hmm. They're able to have um, a, a uh, uh, so protected overhead, a, a lower overhead cost because of the money that they aren't paying into the public till. And so these two things, the prosperity of the school and the poverty of the residents around them, they're directly connected. And and it's not just a sales tax exemption. The other thing I wanted to ask about is tax incremental financing, right? When, we, when universities right. do do development, they also often try and go after these TIFs, which mm -hmm. prevent the city from gaining tax revenue right you want to talk a little That's bit about right. that problem yeah so the tax increment financing in principle it's a it's it has a, a a potentially good um it's a good strategy for producing development in areas where the private investors might not normally invest so the tax increment finance there uh, a block of money is set up initially then that money is directed towards investing in certain neighborhoods that receive a tip a TIF zone, a TIF gets TIF uh, status. Usually the hope is that these will be in financially struggling neighborhoods. But the problem with that is that many times in the case of my book, the partner in this will be a, a, a public or private university and a private developer that will produce a, a development in this area. And then the mayor or the government, they direct uh, the TIFs in that particular neighborhood. But the way this works then is that as property values rise in the neighborhood where investment goes on, that would normally be passed on to that neighborhood. But instead, that increase in revenue goes back to the TIF fund and the neighborhoods never see that money in the form of improving public schools, right. in the form of repairing roads, right. in the form of building out infrastructure. So what happens is, is it, it's the money goes, it scales upward. Mm -hmm. 
And then the residents who don't have investments in that development, that money really trickles down to their everyday needs. Yeah. So you might see private developments coming out of this, like the Yum right. Center where the UofL basketball right. team plays, right? Exactly. Uh, and people like it, and it's yeah. a public resource. But meanwhile, right. our, our transit system's going to pot, our roads are full of potholes, right. Right? our schools That's are in right. desperate need That's of funding. Right. And so that, 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 that investment does increase property taxes. But yeah. the, the, that increase is, is never seen by the public or public works. Or at least for decades, right? However long right. it takes until it's paid off. All right. Um, and generations move on, right? Yeah. So go yeah. Ahead. yeah, go ahead. So we're getting a little towards the end. we got 10 minutes left or so. And I'd sure, love to start sure. focusing more on some solutions, like a way of forward. Course. And and I did ask you specifically about what would be a better solution for the tax situation. So, mm -hmm. I mean, should we make universities not tax exempt and increase tuition to pay those taxes? Or what, what would your proposal be for a, a more rational system of taxing universities? Yeah. Well, for, on the, off the top, there's a great example in Boston. In 2012, uh, Boston area schools um, were asked by the city to offer just a, a, a fraction of voluntary payments in lieu of taxes because Boston mm. is a college town. It's a big city, but it's a college town. Yeah. It's overrun by university yeah. colleges. <laughs> and so it said that any nonprofit with $15 million or more of property, would you volunteer to pay 25% of what you would normally be taxed? None of the schools did that. They didn't pay 25%. Some paid a bit, but none paid the full 25%. So now that we're in the middle of the pandemic and economic recession, um, there is a bill in the state house to make that proposal uh, mandatory. Wow. So not voluntary, but mandatory. Pay 25% if you make if you own 15, $15 million dollars or more worth of property. So that's one possibility. I would build on that to say that, you know, listen, if you are a because what we want is we want to buy in from the university. We want that prosperity to spread. Mm. So we want we don't want them just to turn inward and just go fully private. Mm. So I would say let's have an incremental taxation system whereby um you pay you 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 pay in in comparison to how much you contribute to the community that's around your your city. So if you can if you contribute nothing, you pay full amount. Right, if you contribute right. a lot, then you continue to maintain your your taxes and status because that's, what, that's ultimately what we want. We want universities. If you're building out um, housing, include uh, workforce housing because most of the workers in your city work at a university. Yeah, include workforce housing. If you are you know you mentioned Aramark. If you're producing these tons of food which is not great food anyway, but if you're producing tons of food every day and because of health purposes, you're required to throw it out every day. Well, then during the pandemic, some schools are taking that food and converting it into healthy meals for family, for communities of need. Do that on a regular basis. On the regular, yeah. Right. Um, if you are building or expanding into an impoverished neighborhood, um, include a, a, a community benefits agreement rider mm. on that development mm. that says, you know, you have uh, area code specific requirements for um, uh, um, procurement you have to for any develop any contracting you do or procurement of services has to be generated from that neighborhood mm -hmm. if you're doing training for job you have to create job training um, for that for those neighborhoods you have to assert a certain percentage of the contracts um, or workers on the construction projects must be from those neighborhoods so not just citywide but zip code specific requirements on any development of the university if you are creating or expanding a neighborhood that your your plan, your master plan must go before a community planning board so that we can assess whether it really has a benefit to the community yeah. and not just a citywide framework. So these are some of just a couple of the things that I propose 
in in the book. Yeah. Um, you know, if if you are hiring, um, if, if because what we're finding out is that you some schools are engaging actually in trade in trade union agreements and trade in union bar, collective bargaining with the union. But what's happening is that more and more of the labor on campuses is being subcontracted. So the bargained contract is not subject is not cover the subcontracted workers. And so what I would push for is that any contract that you bargain with your, your union must also be carried over to any subcontractor relationships that you have with the subcontractors. Yeah. And for me, this is not just about revenge, I guess, if you could put it. It's about <laughs> the, the mandate, the mission. If schools are going to be more than just simply schoolhouses, if teaching classes is really going to be a side hustle, if they are going to be what I call basically, they are they are the companies today in our cities. Yeah. And our cities are their company towns. Yeah. So if we're going to be the company towns, but at the same time, these schools are going to make the claims about serving the public good. That's the condition for their tax exemption then this r- arrangement must be commensurate with that mandate. Yeah. And if, if the primary function of the school is real estate and labor and policing, then the public good mandate must transfer into those areas upon which the school also controls and administers. And, and, and that not only will make a better city, but at times of fiscal crisis, I've seen that it makes better schools because in the moments of crisis, the cities rally behind the schools right. because the schools have invested in the city. Right. And it becomes a, a much far better, to, to use a sustainability language, yeah. it becomes a much more healthy ecosystem when you have mutual investment and benefit. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Well, I, I just want to ask you one last thing on the on yeah. the good note story, and then we'll let you go to Varian. And sure. y- you end your book with the story of the University of Winnipeg. Right. I'm sure most of our listeners don't even know where Winnipeg is. What, the <laughs> heck? what are they doing? But actually, there's a big native uh, first people's population up there. Yes. Uh, yes. And the school has a very different relationship with them. You want to briefly tell us about that school? Yeah, real briefly. And the reason why they did it wasn't just purely benevolent. It was because they saw that the number of the traditional suburban white students weren't coming to their school in the same way that they had a huge increase in student body in the 1990s from like 6,000 to 10,000. And most of those students were from the indigenous communities that surrounded the campus. But they understood that to serve those populations, what we might today in, in the US call Pell eligible students, yes, um, they, they needed different kinds of supports. And so what the university says, okay, we're gonna build out housing, but we know it can't be just traditional dorm store housing. It's gotta be um, townhouse housing because these are are, are older adult students with families. So it's gotta have, we gotta have student housing for families. Mm -hmm. And and we're gonna work with the student government and we're going to ask them to increase um, the the square footage of the childcare center for these students with families so that we can have a, a, a much more robust ecosystem of housing with childcare facilities. We're gonna build this thing called the Downtown Commons. Mm-hmm. And it's gonna have premium rate housing with balconies. It's gonna have market rate. It's gonna have rent geared to income and affordable rate. And except for the premium rates having balconies, all the other housing is interchangeable. You can't tell the difference between the units. Hmm. Hmm. And it's gonna also have options for a lottery for the childcare center. So this is the this is the, they, this is the eco. They understood that to meet the needs of a changing city and by extension a changing campus population, you're going to have to have different kind of approaches to housing, childcare, labor, 
They have, you know, Winnipeg, if you don't know, it's in Canada, Manitoba. It's it's brick cold nine <laughs> months out of the year. They, they have built a, a recreational center. And they knew that you got to have indoor spaces right, for the public. Right. And so they, they put together a community charter where community organizations have usage of this campus recreational center, this wow. new state of art facility in peak hours. So not at midnight, you know, or <laughs> Sunday afternoon, but at peak hours, there are reserved hours for the community charter for community organizations with for this facility. They, they had a contract with Aramark. They fired Aramark. And they created the thing called diversity foods, which were 60%, 65% of the of the workers are from hard to employ communities. So LGBTQ, indigenous, um, recently incarcerated, uh, single mothers. And they have begun to shift from being wage-based to collective bargaining. These individual workers have shares in this company. Mm. And 60, to bring in sustainability, 60 to 65% of the raw materials for this food service facility come from small local farms wow. from within a hundred kilometer radius. They have compost stations next to every food station, workstation, wow. and all the cooking oil is sent out to be converted into biodiesel. So this is a very different model. And when people say, well, you're just critiquing, you're often critiquing, what's the solution? This <laughs> is a model solution. And it was not simply some pie in the sky a hippy dippy Canada solution. It came out of a, a first of all protest on the part of residents because of the ways in which the university had been doing things badly yeah. or traditionally yep. years before, and the need to meet the new demographic of their community. And that's the message for residents and community members today: that if you're going to, if we're going to survive in the future, that traditional, full-paying white suburban student, those those families aren't having kids anymore. Mm-hmm. We're gonna and in diversifying our demographic, we're gonna have to diversify our services and our facilities. And that's going to require a model that's closer to Winnipeg than our current conditions. And so that becomes a model for what we can do differently. A different university is possible because a different student is on the horizon. A different city is in our midst. And the universities must act accordingly if they're going to continue to have such a pervasive impact on the cities where they sit. That is perfect. Thank you so much to Varian Baldwin for speaking truth to power with your book In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities, just out this year from Bold Type Books. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much. And for your listeners, if you want to continue the conversation, you can reach out to me um, at Devarian Baldwin on Twitter. Um, and we can continue the conversation. Thanks. That's fantastic. All right. Stay tuned, everybody. Coming up in just a second, your community action calendar with all kinds of ideas about how you can get involved in sustainability now. So stay tuned, my friend. Flow like a river to the sea when it's all in you and me Our whole world seems in harmony
sustainability now with me justin mogg getting ready for your community action calendar so get your pencils sharpened and get your calendars out my friends this could be your week to make sustainability a reality here in louisville and it all starts on tuesday october 5th at noon with a racism white supremacy culture and cultural humility it's a virtual workshop for women with reverend shania leonard from noon to two on tuesday the 5th this hybrid workshop will focus on a basic introduction to the concepts of racism, white supremacy culture, and cultural humility. We will look at the connections between the two and the ways we can look at where each shows up in our lives and in interactions with others. We'll use interactive learning to explore how we navigate difficult conversations around these topics and objectives for building a more intercultural environment. This workshop is free thanks to grant funding from the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth and PCUSA Racial Equity and Women's Intercultural Ministries. You can learn more and register for the Tuesday noon workshop at spiritofsophia.org spiritofsophia s-o-p-h-i-a dot org 
Now, also on Tuesday the 5th at 11 a.m., but also repeating on Thursday at seven, uh, the 7th at 6 p.m., the Kentucky Solar Advocacy Network is presenting Energy Democracy and Utility Regulation, Key Players in Our Energy System and How We Can Steer Them Towards Change. Now, I'm, I'm reminded you of this last week, and it was so popular they've decided to put on two more virtual events this week. So there's two options to tune in. Again, Tuesday the 5th at 11 a.m. or Thursday the 7th at 6 p.m. For the past 10 years or so, it's been impossible to pass good energy legislation in Kentucky due to obstructionist leaders in our energy and environment committees. So what are we to do if we want to promote renewable energy and support the just transition? Enter the public service commission the psc makes important decisions every day about our energy and water systems everything from regulating monopoly utilities and setting rates to overseeing planning for the future we're in a historic moment where all three commissioners have been appointed by governor Bashir, and we have the opportunity to push this commission to do what's best for kentuckians and the climate you can learn more about how the psc works the vision for energy democracy in Kentucky and how you can play a role in ensuring the PSC is a voice for the public. Register to the attend the event at eventbrite.com and you can find the link at facebook.com slash solar Kentucky. Again, this is Kentucky Solar Advocacy Network and their virtual workshops this Tuesday and Thursday on energy democracy and utility regulation. Find the link at facebook.com slash solar Kentucky. Now, also coming up on Thursday, October 7th, and actually running through November 11th, it's a short course examining weather on planet Earth, hosted at your public library at the main library, 301 York Street. The wind never stops. Understanding the processes that shape our atmosphere will be led by Dr. Jason Naylor. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Geographic and Environmental Sciences at University of Louisville. This six weeks course will introduce participants to the fascinating behavior of the Earth's atmosphere. The air that surrounds us is an invisible ocean whose behavior and movements have a profound impact on countless aspects of our daily lives. To some, the weather may seem chaotic and unpredictable. However, the truth is much more elegant. Atmospheric motion can be understood through a complex balancing act of forces and counterforces. Disturbances to that balance are the primary cause of changing weather patterns. This short course will introduce participants to the fascinating behavior of the Earth's atmosphere, including the causes of seasonal changes in weather, clouds and cloud formation, tornadoes, and other severe weather hazards, as well as the future of Earth's clouds. Climate. The class is free, but registration is required. And again, it's on Thursdays, October 7th through November 11th at 6.30 p.m. at the main library. And you can register at lfpl.org for the Louisville Free Public Library. That's lfpl.org. Now, Saturday is also the next in the tenant organizer training, collectivizing our struggles that you heard about here on this program about a month and a half ago when it kicked it kicked off. It's Saturdays, 2 to 3.30 p.m. at various locations around the state and available online in collaboration with tenant-led organizations across the state. Kentucky Tenants, a project of Root Cause Research Center, launched this tenant organizing training series back in August with trainings hosted around the state and options to zoom in on Saturday. 
Saturdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. And coming up this Saturday, October 9th, it's Campaign Planning 101. That'll be taking place down in Bowling Green, but you can join via Zoom. And again, it runs through December 18th when the uh, live version will be back in Louisville with tenant organizing in Kentucky. Where do we go from here? You can sign up anytime between now and the final training on December 18th. Learn more and register to participate at rootcauseresearch.org slash tenant training. rootcauseresearch.org slash tenant training. And the last thing I want to let you all know about is that coming up this Sunday, October 10th, my friends, from 2 to 6 p.m., Cycluvia is back. The most popular open streets event is returning to Bardstown Road on Sunday from 2 to 6 p.m. And Bardstown Road from Douglas Boulevard all the way to Grinstead Drive will be closed to motor vehicles. There'll be facilitated crossings at Eastern Parkway to help anyone get through and you can come and enjoy this uh, linear park that'll be opening up on Sunday from 2 to 6 in any way you want either on bicycle skateboard roller skates unicycles uh, bubble machine whatever you want to do chalk up the roadway it's your time to take back the streets from uh, motorized vehicles and enjoy with your neighbors the Bardstown Road Corridor, which I've, I've done Cycluvia on Bardstown Road, and is a whole different experience without those nasty, polluting, disgusting death boxes rolling past you constantly. So come on out this and from 2 to 6 p.m. Bardstown Road, anywhere between Douglas Boulevard and Grinstead Drive. It's absolutely free and fun, my friends. And that's all the time we have for to here on Sustainability Now. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in today. Uh, and I will be back in your ears again in one week's time with a whole new show. So I'll see you back here on Forward Radio, 106.5 FM and forwardradio.org. Be well, my friends.